0: take first watch
1: hello and welcome to an all-new episode of the first watch podcast joining me today is cole
2: the dead speak
1: (laughs) we're back i think the last time that we got to talk to each other on this show was about Pedro Almodovar, all about yes, my mother. Yes, that's right. The Oscar-nominated Parallel Mothers, but a whole lot has happened since then. The the event which brings us back together today is the U.S. release of Gaspar Noé's Vortex, a film which had its debut at Cannes last year but before we get around the vortex since it's been a while what have you been seeing
2: well in terms of recent releases let's take a quick look at a double feature of british people being weird let's start off with downton abbey a new era this is a sequel to the 2019 film downton abbey which itself was a sequel to the six season television show that aired on bbc in the uk and pbs in the united states Brings back pretty much everybody that you know, the entire Crawley family, most notably Maggie Smith, is back as the Dowager Countess. And it turns out that the Dowager Countess has been bequeathed a mansion in the south of France by a one-time friend or lover or possibly more and so the extended family and the lord and lady go down to the south of france to figure out why this house was left to her even though her and this other member in ability only knew each other for one week about 60 years ago Meanwhile, back at Downton Abbey, a film shoot is going on, and the oldest daughter of the family, Mary, who is basically prepping herself to take over as head of the estate, even gets involved in a singing in the rain-like scenario, because when this is set in 1927, sound is in, so she ends up in a Debbie Reynolds situation, and if you notice i'm having a hard time describing what happens in this movie it's because they try to cram an entire season of television into two hours this is the most schizophrenic screenplay of the year plot points come and go like that i mean there's one moment where it's like oh my god this person might have cancer or this person wants to move in with that person and they happen once get dropped come back like 40 minutes later and you're like wait what the fuck when did that happen
1: yeah, you know, you would think the tie into the Downton Abbey, like, your expectation of it would be, like, it's a single setting. It's all set at this one party or something, and it's got all the characters that you know, but it's a relatively simple story. Yeah, no. But um, instead, no, it's Avengers Endgame. Yeah, it's Endgame, we're going to France. This um, is my multiverse of madness.
2: <laughs> Maggie Smith is our Elizabeth Olsen.
1: So... Those, th- that was the first set of Brits. Tell us about the second.
2: Well, the second set of Brits, although really it's just one Brit. One Brit and an Irish actress who needs to either fire her agent or get better <laughs> taste. Let me tell you about Men. Men is an A24 horror film directed by Alex Garland, also written by Alex Garland, um, known best for Ex Machina and Annihilation. Which I think we both love, or at least like. Yeah, um, they're both very well-respected movies. However... I've
1: personally been a fan of Alex Garland for a long time because he's had a few collaborations with Danny Boyle, including "Yes Sunshine, 28 Days Later, and The Beach, which is based on a novel that he wrote. So he's been around being a weird dude writing very inconsistent scripts for a long time.
2: Yeah, he's only done, like, directing more recently, but yeah. a long, long career in screenwriting. This is his third feature film as a director. He goes away from the sci-fi and leans into folk horror...
1: Now yeah, it's, it's midsummer.
2: It's knockoff midsummer, Well, that's the thing. Every A24 elevated horror film is the same thing now. And the complete and sound rejection of this movie, both by the audiences and by the critics, is perhaps the sign that we have mercifully reached the end
1: of this race. To delve into that just a little bit, just so that it doesn't sound like we're kicking it for the sake of kicking it. This is a movie that I went into optimistic. And I think I was pretty on board for the duration of the movie until it ended. And then I was like, okay, no, (laughs) this isn't any good at all. There's a recent trend in horror movies that has really taken an uptick in the 2010s, particularly in the wake, I think, of two movies, The Babadook and Hereditary, of horror movies that hinge their metaphor specifically on the emotional set of issues that we associate with grief, which is topical Mm -hmm. for the film that we're going to be talking about today, The Ways Vortex, because I think that it handles some of these issues in a in a different way, which you and I appreciate a lot, we'll get to discuss. I can think of off the top of my head, we've got Midsummer. There was The Nighthouse last year, which was about this. There is Lamb last year that was about this to some degree. Lamb was about a lot of kooky stuff, but one of the <laughs> things that it was about was like this couple that had lost a kid. And it's like this this theme of like someone in your life dying and then the movie's sort of horror elements being an exploration of that it's the most half-baked version of it I've seen in a long time because it's based on a relationship that you only see in flashback during the breakup fight that leads to a suicide that's like kind of an ambiguous suicide, but it's not that ambiguous. I think the thing that really bothered me about that movie is that it sort of presents you with that breakup. And then it's like weird, goofy stuff is happening in the movie. Rory Kinnear is playing all these different characters and it's very beguiling. And then it's like, okay, but what are they gonna do? Because they showed me the relationship. So, like, what's gonna be the thing? And then there's no other thing, it's just that. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's, okay. I could have walked out five minutes in, I got it. <laughs>
2: Thanks. That's the thing. There is not a movie here. There's only a message. If you're not aware of the plot, and the plot involves Jesse Buckley portraying a young woman who, after the suicide of her abusive husband, goes off to a small rural village in the countryside of England. And weird things happen there, including every single man in the village. And this is a village with apparently only men. Every single man there is played by Rory Kinnear, including the... 12-year-old bullying yeah. <laughs> child who looks like a Polar Express kid.
1: And then like a forest goblin who is like a yeah. folkloric thing. There's like a whole folkloric basis for this character that just does not feel explored. It feels exploited for its imagery. There's about 20 cool minutes of it, in my opinion, where Jesse Buckley walks out into the woods. It's the thing from the original poster where she finds the tunnel. Yes, And just nothing really happens, but it... If you've seen Annihilation, what that movie explores is like these people traversing this kind of alien Tarkovsky stalker zone thing. And there's a brief point in that movie where it just feels like anything could happen when Jesse Buckley's out there walking in the woods. And that mm-hmm. sensation's really cool. If it were a 20 minute short film where that was what happened, and maybe you put some of the weird Kinnear stuff out in the woods, pretty interesting ditch the message. Yeah. Just make weird stuff, my guy. Because it this feels like it's nothing like this movie when you watch it, but it reminds me of how Last Night in Soho, the Edgar Wright movie, Last Night in Soho, just mm. is so obsessed with having a message that it imparts onto you that it's like, man, did you even think about trying to make this enjoyable? Here's the thing.
2: If you're making a horror movie and you're focused on the message, you're doing it wrong.
1: You're doing it wrong you can have a message yeah, all ghost 100%. stories to some extent are about grief and loss and death and mourning but it's just become such a cottage industry who have these scripts that are you know they have one idea to them it's like yeah. thing is a metaphor for thing and that's it yeah. and there's no yeah. there's no deeper character than that there's no deeper drama than that it's just like okay yeah
2: the thing is is that these companies that shove out 10 of these a year all learned the wrong lessons not just from the babadook not just from it follows but specifically they learned the wrong lessons from hereditary
1: that movie being such a huge success has been really interesting for a24 for the horror genre for ari aster who has like a new maybe three and a half hour long movie coming out who knows God help us all. We'll just, we'll we'll worry about <laughs> Aster when he gets here. I think Men is, is, you know, maybe nearer to the bottom of both of our lists, but there have been some movies sure. that have come out this year that I know that you've enjoyed that we haven't necessarily gotten a chance to talk about. So like, hit me with your top five of the year so I'm- far.
2: Okay, so my number five, I believe this movie is actually, as of this recording, it's supposed to be dropping on VOD on Friday, May 27th, so everyone gets to enjoy it. This is Aline. This is the unauthorized biopic of Celine Dion, where they somehow got the rights for almost all of her songs. The only song they didn't get the rights to was The Power of Love. And that's because that's a cover of a Jennifer Rush song. But they got the rights for everything else. But for some reason, they had to change her name. And everybody else's name involved in this. It's a French film directed by Valérie Le Mercier, who also plays Céline, or I mean Aline, I'll say Aline, from the ages of 5 to 54. If you're wondering how she plays a 5-year-old, just imagine her face on a five-year-old's body or actually it's her body but like shrunken down to what a five-year-old would be like (laughs) and her face is still the same they did not make her younger at all it's just her face on like this five-year-old sized adult body
1: there's a parallel to men i love it
2: (laughs) this is so much better than men though because it just (laughs) leans into that kookiness i mean here's the thing if you're going to make an unauthorized biopic of celine dion it should be campy chaotic Kooky and yet completely heartfelt and deeply sincere, which this is because the director is a huge fan of Celine and that she wanted to do this out of love. And that comes through in the film and also chronicling her lifelong relationship with her manager, which, you know, if we really dig into it, there was something really, really wrong there in that power dynamic. But if you're a romantic, then you can kind of sweep it under the rug, I guess. But this is a, this is
1: a preview for later when we'll be talking probably about Boz Luhrmann's Elvis. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the, the places are falling into place.
2: I think this is actually the perfect companion piece for whatever Elvis is going to end up being. So, if you're into Celine Dion, if you're into completely insane yet completely heartfelt and sincere movies, then Aline is definitely for you. So, what's your number five?
1: Um, my number five, I have to think about it. My six is coming up on your list. My number five is Mad God, the Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett is a, was a special effects artist in Hollywood, predominantly in the 1980s, 1990s. His probably his most famous work is Jurassic Park. He's Mm -hmm. really known for having done the uh, animatronics and a lot of the effects work that you see in that film that makes it such a enduring and ageless classic of special effects filmmaking. Mad God is a project that Phil Tippett started more or less in his own personal studio and worked on for over 30 years with a long hiatus in the middle where basically like using Jurassic Park as an example, he has this really kind of famous quote, I don't know it verbatim, but where he looked at the digital effects of Jurassic Park and went, oh my God, I'm going to go out of business. And around that time, you know, obviously as we got to the end of the nineties and into the two thousands, CG animation and all these types of things really take off and Phil Tippett puts his project aside. But then eventually he resurrected it and was able to release the film. And what that project is, is an enormous, expansive stop-motion odyssey. There's almost no dialogue to the film. It's animated, pulled entirely through environmental storytelling, visuals, atmosphere, mood. And it tells the, I guess... I don't even know if it's really a narrative, but it tells the story of this, you know, little explorer who constantly kind of traverses this insane, chaotic underworld. That's, I mean, it's really difficult to describe it because it's such a, uh, it's a Hieronymus Bosch painting where it it just feels like the scale of it is impossibly large. And when you see the level of detail that goes into the smallest little parts of it, you feel like that detail extends all the way to every inch of this kind of model world that Tippett has built. I mean, and, it, and it's a real testament to everything that he's ever been about as a special effects artist. It has the feeling of like a, like a little bit of a student film, like a little bit of a project, but at such a scale that you can't help but just kind of get swept up into what a uniquely engrossing experience it is. Compared to what you usually get out of animation in the West, it is super creative. It's very different. It's so moody and apocalyptic. And it just it Perfect. feels like... Yeah, it feels like nothing that would ever come out of Disney, DreamWorks, or any of the animation studios that people may be used to. It's something entirely kind of creator-driven, neat. Well, I would love to see that in a theater, because I bet that would just be like, to see that on such a big screen would be like overwhelming.
2: Yeah, just imagine that in IMAX.
1: (laughs) Just wall-to-wall, disgusting practical effects. Yeah,
2: just go home and take a shower for an hour afterwards. There's a physicality to it. But the way that things move puts you in that sense of surrealism.
1: So number four for you?
2: Let's see. My number four is probably going to be everybody's number one. And people who don't like this on the internet have been executed via guillotine firing squad. This is everything, everywhere, all at once.
1: The big the indie hit of the year. In terms it of-
2: keeps going. Uh, it's making basically $3 million every weekend is not dropping. Just recently became a 24's highest grossing film in the United States, beating out Lady Bird and Uncut Gems. This is the multiversal story of an aging Chinese immigrant played by the brilliant Michelle Yeoh, who finds out that she is the chosen one to save the multiverse from an evil force. And she finds out that her husband, who's played by Ki Huang Kuang, who you might know from The Goonies and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, finally making his return to the big screen after over 20 years. I think um, his
1: last role is in Encino in Man.
2: He's been doing a lot of stunt work, stunt coordinating, but it's also amazing to finally see him back on the big screen. And it turns out that their daughter may in fact be that very evil threatening the multiverse, but of course things are not as simple as they seem. So they end up going on the most magical mind bending trip you can imagine inside of an IRS office, taking all kinds of forms, shapes and sizes and then turning into maybe the most moving family drama of the year
1: i got to see this one in imax and i got to see it a little nice. up a little earlier than its main release so it was a very crowded yeah. screening which was a really good experience because it's a very emotional movie it's a very funny movie it's got a lot of jokes in it so when you have it yeah. in a room with that many people and you have that many jokes no matter what joke is being told somebody in the room's laughing and so it's just like two and a half hours of roaring audience laughter I love how much people are out supporting that it's produced by the Russo brothers. So like, let's not go crazy, but it is, you know, it's an <laughs> independent effort. Daniels are the name of the, the director. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Directors of Swiss army men, which is a, that really had kind of a pull on Twitter. It's a little bit more of a cult thing. And I think this is too, but it's been really nice to kind of see a movie that yeah. is a, this creative, <laughs> And be this sort of earnest, you know, to you could make a pretty good comparison to Rick and Morty with this film. The difference being that this is just like, as you as you say, it's a really moving family drama because it is so sincere. This is a movie that I think is really speaking to a younger generation of people. I think that the sincere, maximalist lol xd random (laughs) it's sort of yeah i think it's something that it's a unique little cocktail that i think is gonna speak to every single person of a certain age to some degree or another and that's gonna give it this really interesting afterlife and i'm really curious to kind of see what this movie's consensus is like in five years and in 10 years and in 15 years
0: Yeah,
2: this is like the rare indie that successfully manages to cross over into the mainstream. Just word of mouth is carrying to this point where everybody has to go see it. Even though it's got, again, that's extremely specific brand of humor that might not be for everybody. So if you're not into the humor, then no sale.
1: You know, I'll say that for me, like, it's really not my brand of humor, but definitely seeing it with other people made it an experience that was really... You know, I was I was happy to have gone and seen it. So it's like one of those things, yeah. where it's like, even if it's not entirely your bag, it's just going to win you over with how joyful it is. Yeah. And and I think like the the strength of its cast, Michelle Yeoh is, is lovely. The father steals the show. The, the grandfather's played by James Hong. a little bit of a who's who of Kind of like asian american crossover actors uh jamie lee curtis is really fun in it also <laughs> there's no way that i can watch jamie lee curtis do any of the things that she does in that movie and be like it's
2: bad <laughs> the the ultimate irs agent from hell i loved every single second she was on screen Did you see? i love how was... she's constantly promoting this movie and telling doctor strange to go
1: fuck itself <laughs> Did you see the post where it's, like, the stock image of, like, IRS Auditor? (laughs) And it's her (laughs) yellow yellow sweater and the vest and the wig. It's so good. (laughs) So my number four, I think, was a movie that took just a little bit of a tumble for you. And that is Matt Reeves' The Batman, which obviously is probably the biggest movie of the year so far in terms of both box office success, critical success, internet, word of mouth. There's not, I don't have like a ton to say about it. I like it. It's a good Batman. Yeah. Movie, you know, it's, like it's, it's like a, it's it's like a movie. Where Robert Pattinson puts on a suit and he's got eyeliner and he listens to Nirvana and fights Paul Dano. It's cool. Yeah. Um, no, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about that movie, I will give it one serious note of, there's, I think there's kind of two things and they're entwined, is that I think that it's the first live action Batman movie that gives a shit about Batman as a source material in a serious way. I think the Burton and Schumacher movies mind it for its aesthetics. I think that Christopher Nolan translated it to three movies that were like cinematic adaptations of the television show 24, where Batman was a counter-terrorist or like the movie Heat as is yeah. the case with The Dark Knight. And then I don't know what in God's name Zack Snyder was doing. That shit's not for me. But this feels like the first one of these that kind of took that character and that world of Gotham City so seriously. And that's yeah. the second thing, is that I think that it's easily the best version of that city since Batman Returns, or maybe the Schumacher movies, if you want to give those a little bit of credit for their production design, feel that expansive, kind of urban, fantastical world. And at least seeing it in a theater, there's just kind of a, You kind of get you can get a little lost in it. I also really like Jeffrey and I and Colin Farrell, and I would settle for a movie that was like an hour and a half of them just kind of like making noises and yelling at each other.
0: (laughs) Because those two guys
1: are great. I think they're, like, making a Colin Farrell show. I probably will not
2: watch it. They are, in fact, because, again, even here, and what feels like should be a solo-contained thing, we have to set up other movies. My big (laughs) problem with this is that it just felt like two movies in one. I mean, after Paul Dano gets arrested, everything just kind of goes to hell. You know, I love the atmosphere, but I still think that we're dealing with, you know, just standard blockbuster material
1: not something that maybe earns the expansive nature of it. Because I think that I can settle yeah. for the duration and the plottedness because what you're looking at is, is a thing that kind of makes Gotham City feel very big and alive and full of things. And I think that it balances most of its pieces really well. Yeah, But it feels, because of the nature of the plot, like a guided tour around Gotham. Like you're on the choo-choo train going around the zoo. And you kind of wish that you were on a roller coaster going around the zoo. If it was going to be yeah. such an on track experience, then what we could do is make it more throttling, make it more action packed uh, without like a greater degree of plot complexity. It's very much a noir pastiche and not a noir. And that's like there's a critical difference. I also think I'm talking so much more about this Batman movie than I wanted to. But for a noir pastiche, the sexuality isn't there either. And part of that's because it's a PG-13 movie. I think part of it's because of the characterization of Batman as like a lonely little virgin. But, like, yeah. I just don't feel it with Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. And, like, when I watched yeah. it the second time, I was just like, yeah, I don't feel it. Which is okay. It's not necessarily wrong for yeah. some characters to not be getting together. But, like, a little bit of romance, a little bit of sex would have been the thing, I think, to sell this to me.
2: Yeah, To I just an even don't greater think, extent. Yeah, I just don't think they had that sensuality there between them. And that was really lacking. And then, again, on your point about the guided tour, it only picks up. When we get that admittedly pretty great Batmobile chase, where everyone stops, freezes, looks at what the hell's hiding in the dark, and you hear it scream like a T-Rex before chasing the penguin.
1: It feels like what the movie could do is use that as the catalyst to move into its third act and just kind of ramp up and get to the end, but instead it's got like another fucking 80 minutes.
0: Yeah,
2: and that should have been the launching point into the third act. Yeah. Instead, we have to go do more stuff just to drag everything down yeah. and then go into a third act that feels like a studio note. Just basically yeah, the totally. studio asking totally. for more action. They were like, right. we need action because we need to sell this.
1: I completely agree. And, and it's sort of an interesting thing where it's like they're a little bit right. They do need more action in that script. And they're a little bit wrong because it's like if you just took the action out of it, maybe there's a chance to make something that's more complicated than what we were seeing. But regardless, what I'm going to say is this: when you're looking at superhero movies, this is the best looking one of them since like Logan in live action.
2: One hundred percent.
1: Not because saying it's, it's 100- a high bar, but it's a bar.
2: Well, this one was, you know, actually filmed in real locations and right. they had a DP who they had, didn't have like, to extras. shoot on a million green screens. Yeah, they had real things. Can you believe the bar is so low that we have to praise the basic fundamentals of filmmaking at this point?
1: I'm really looking forward to it because they're going to do a sequel and there's a little bit of like tedium with superhero stuff. All right. Yeah. i to watch another one of these fucking things. But I'm interested to see where they go because it's a good lead actor, just good cast in general, good environment, good aesthetics. So, like, I'm in. I like his monkey movies, and I like this movie.
2: I'm interested to see where this goes. I'm just glad that we're not going to necessarily have to rely on a TV series to understand what's going on in that sequel. Heavens! So, what's your number three? Uh, uh, let's see, my number three is going in a completely different direction. This is The Worst Person in the World. This was an Oscar nominee for Best International Feature and Best Original Screenplay. This chronicles the life of Julie over the course of several years. She's a young woman, and I believe it's...
1: I was think it was Oslo, but it's because he has another movie.
2: Yeah, it is Oslo. Yeah, Oslo, August 31st, Masterpiece, everyone should go see it. If you're listening, go watch it. And he also directed Thelma, which is the best X-Men movie that's not an X-Men
1: movie. <laughs> I think my but, vote might go for Raw if we can count Raw as an X-Men movie. They should be in the same superhero team, those two girls. I know,
2: that, that's the crossover <laughs> we really need. But my this movie of madness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, this
2: movie chronicles Julie for the course of four years in 12 different chapters as she goes from relationship to relationship, trying to figure out her place in the world. And what I admire the most about this is that it feels like walking across a tightrope specifically because of the screenplay structure if any of this was mishandled it would collapse in on itself but because it's being directed by hawking trier who's a great director and especially because of renate Rainsve, who plays julie who gives just like this supernova performance it works really well as a story of coming of age but also accepting that no one knows what the hell they're doing the older you get and that we're all still coming of age, even all the way to the very end.
1: Also, a little bit of a tragic love story on and off. There's a oh, lot yeah. to do with her romantic interests, particularly with Anders Danielson <laughs> Lee. He's, he gives probably my favorite performance in that movie. Yeah. He's been in a number of Trier films, I believe. Partnerships. He was him. also
2: in a Personal Shopper and Bergman Island.
1: Oh, that's right. He is in Personal Shopper. I love that movie. Yeah. I love his space. Yeah. That's my guy. I will say that as far as the worst person in the world goes, one, it should have won best original screenplay over Belfast because it was the best original screenplay dominated at the Oscars. It should
2: have won over Belfast. I still can't believe
1: that one. It's, it's insane. Belfast and Coda both winning is like maybe the most tragic thing that's ever happened to the screenplay category, but that's a different yeah. conversation. Uh, yeah. No, I really enjoyed this screenplay. You know, like a lot of, movies that try to do this sort of like multi-chapter thing are really cutesy and bad but I really enjoyed the way that like each one of the chapters of this movie kind of has like a concise idea that it explores to where you could almost see it as an anthology but it it, but it isn't and the disjointedness of her journey eventually starts to kind of feel like the theme itself reminds me a lot of Francis Ha it's a movie that I kind of reaches me a little bit closer maybe because it's American I don't know but I think that Renat Reinsva is really poised For big stuff I feel like she's Sort of everywhere Online as soon as this movie came Out it was like her face was everywhere it's like Paul Thomas Anderson's obsessed with her
2: (laughs) He needs to cast her for the Next movie come on Paul let's go We gotta gotta
1: put her and Dakota Johnson in the same movie and have Them play like persona
2: That's my multiverse of madness
1: Give me my little three women Of the 2020s
2: (laughs) What is your number three?
1: So my number three actually hails from last year, but it got its theatrical release this year. So I moved it from last year's list to this year's list. Uh, and it is Celine Siamas' Petite Maman, which is a movie that ah. I really love and have not talked about at all, it feels like. I just don't feel like I've said two words about the thing since I reviewed it. It just hasn't yeah. really come up, maybe because it took so long to get its US release or limited interest, but... Uh, Petit yeah, Neon was kind
2: of messy on the release.
1: Yeah, it, I don't even remember. I think I must have pirated it or watched a screener or something back kind of late last year. Petite Maman is Celine Siamas' follow-up to her masterpiece, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And it's a return to a type of film that she's made numerous times, which is a coming-of-age film. It reminds yeah. me a lot of her earlier effort from 2011 Tomboy, which is my second favorite Sciamma film in that it's a movie with a really short runtime that centers around a child character, a pair of child characters, in fact, and their interior and exterior worlds. Both of these movies, Tomboy, *Petite Maman, are heavily influenced by Hayao Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro. And Petit Maman kind of takes that even further into becoming magical realism, an exploration of childhood, memories, motherhood, the relationship between generations of women within this family all spurred on by a kind of inciting incident of the grandmother of the main character who is a little girl dying and she and her mother go to pack up the house and the mother gets very emotional being at the house and all her memories there and she has to leave so what kind of ends up happening is that the father and the little girl stay and pack up the house and the little girl kind of plays in the yard and all these things and then she meets another little girl who looks exactly like her what Mm -hmm. who she doesn't know she's like who is this person and they have all these different little adventures and what transpires i mean i mean with siama the thing is like i feel like i just told you the entire script of the movie but i haven't told you anything about what the movie's like because it's so gestural and it's so based on like how these characters reveal information to each other and the kind of tender way that they either look at each other or help each other or like, you know, one of the little girls go to pick up something heavy and the other one goes and runs and gets the other. Yeah, because they pick just,
2: up the, the canoe.
1: It's just kind of this calming portrait of family life that, again, it, it begins with death. And so it touches on melancholy grief unspoken feelings of strife among families and trying to work around the things that you can't know about people by exploring the details of their lives, like the objects that they've touched or the places that they've been.
2: It's a very moving and heartfelt little gem. It feels like finding a music box in an attic somewhere and just opening it up and listening to that simple yet deeply meaningful melody.
1: And it's, it's a movie that really wants you to take in not just the sound of the music, but what every little piece of the music box looks like and the dust that's collected on it and the way this little piece of it's out of tune. And, and it just gets really, really, really into the details in such a small window of time. A real gem. I think we each have the same number two and the same number one.
2: I think we do. I
1: think we do. So you're number two. You got to see number two before any of us did.
2: Oh, almost a year ago. And I got to give some feedback, and thankfully, despite some stories about what was going on in post-production, the version that I saw of this and the final version that got released to everybody are basically one and the same. There's just some little bit of difference at the beginning and at the very, very end. Our number two is The Northman.
1: The latest and greatest from Robert Eggers, his third effort, third feature, he's done a couple short films. The Witch and the Lighthouse, both of which very Mm -hmm. big, A24 release, particularly the Lighthouse, which was an Oscar nominee. I believe it was nominated for both cinema, no, just cinematography. Just cinematography.
2: (laughs) Yeah, still huge. I can't believe that Academy members watched that and liked it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Maybe they have good taste after all.
1: Orphan is, it could be most easily understood to be an adaptation of Hamlet. It is not an adaptation of Hamlet. It is an adaptation of The Legend of Amleth, which is the literary basis. Of William Shakespeare's Hamlet, and thus they share a great many similarities. Narrative it tells the story yeah. of a young prince, amlet played by none other than young Bruce Wayne from the Batman. Same actor, cinema's greatest orphan.
2: It's having a good year.
1: Son, son of Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawke. And what transpires? Fans of The Lion King may may realize is uh, is an act of treachery, wherein Hamlet's uncle murders Amless's father. And Amless swears revenge, as we see in the trailer. I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjölnir, And sets off, not on a quest. He sets off on a quest, but he doesn't set off on a quest. (laughs) We find him years later, kind of all hulked out. He's with this group of Viking berserkers having sort of lost the path of his quest for revenge against the idea Zylo. of
2: Hokuna Matata is a lot bloodier than the <laughs> Disney version. Let's just say that.
1: His his Rosencrantz and Gildenstern suck blood out of people's beating <laughs> arteries in their necks. The movie is all I knew going into this movie was that new Egger's film. Like the last two, I expected that it would have a strong basis in both history and literature, which it does, that it would have strong basis in production design to bring those things to life, which it does, because particularly it has this really expanded budget. His first two movies cost about $4 million a piece. This is close to 100 The numbers are all over yeah. the place, but it's anywhere from yeah. $60 to 100 is
2: what I have heard. Some of that was because of COVID protocols and they had started filming. And then by the time they were, I believe, about 20% in, the pandemic hit. So they had to shut down for a while. And then they were one of the first productions to really get back on their feet. So they had to go through testing and sanitization and safety precautions. So pretty much every single film being made nowadays, their budgets are inflated because of COVID pre- precautions.
1: I would say, and this is just rough. Don't take me as any kind of expert. It looks and feels like a 60 to $65 million movie which is like, that's an insane jump in terms of production value from his last two movies. And he used it to make an action banger, to make like a movie where people get the shit kicked out of them relentlessly. I've never seen somebody try to marry something so bookish. It's a movie for history majors that love NNA. And then you also get
2: all these great mystical elements that are completely real in the universe of the film. Willem Dafoe is back with Edgar. As the as a clown gesture and also a magician, Bjork has a show stopping cameo as a witch. Shout We're going out, with uh, the Lion King thing. She's basically the Rafiki who tells him to get his act together.
1: And there's kind of a second character that does that well. There's sort of three witch doctor characters in the movie,
2: and I wanted yeah. to shout
1: out uh, Ingvar Sigurdsson who plays the third one. It's the the he witch that he runs yes. into in the cave. That actor, great Icelandic actor in a lot of great movies. The main thing that he's been in recently is called A White, White Day, which is like mm-hmm. an Icelandic thriller film. Eggers is like a really great director of performances. And I would say that his first two movies kind of demonstrate that a little bit more readily than The Northman does because it's like this action revenge movie. Yeah. But it's really cool to see him work with such an expansive <laughs> cast of actors. Yeah, because
2: this one's more ensemble focused. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so you get... Ethan Hawke, and you get all these different people in these little bite-sized roles. The name that we haven't necessarily mentioned yet, that we should, is Nicole Kidman, because Nicole Kidman steals the whole movie, in my opinion.
2: She gets the monologue of the century
1: so good it's skarsgård's films alexander skarsgård plays the lead character of Amleth. his is a really physical and non-verbal performance it's really about his physical transformation in terms of his size but also just kind of he walks around like this tense muscle all the time and he's got this like really sad boy face that he's pulling for the entire movie just moping
2: around while I can't believe I haven't mentioned her yet Anya Taylor-Joy who plays a Slavic slave slash witch who ends up becoming um, homeless lover
1: this is a little cakey, but I kind of felt like she was the most underwhelming performance of the main performances, and I don't really think it's about her. I think it's two things. It's one, she's doing an accent which I don't really care for. The whole movie's kind of got some questionable accent shit going on. If I'm being if I'm being honest, but that's okay. It's minor. The other, th- it's she doesn't really get like a ton of meat. I kind of was hoping that she was going to do some more like cooped out witchy shit than she ends she doesn't up doing. Get
2: a- big moment until like her very last scene
1: yeah and that like that's just cool yeah yeah, because everyone else gets
2: at least a big moment where they get to go all freaky with it
1: the movie made me immediately want to watch and I did rewatch. watch <laughs> Malik's The New World. because It's yeah. just, it's so much open air. You know, I, it's, it's rare to see a blockbuster. We were just talking about how the Batman was oh, like, it's on worried. sets, it has extras. It's like, yeah, this is in Europe. <laughs> they had a camera yeah. and they had a village built and they filmed it. You just have that sense of the environment and the air and the earth, which are also important to the narrative about Yiddies.
2: What this does in a really interesting way that most historical period pieces do not is that this... This doesn't attempt to make any of what's going on relatable or understandable. Like the only time the movie ever really engages with what the modern world is like is this great throwaway joke about how Christians are all crazy because they worship a corpse nailed to a tree.
1: A really good indicator of this is in the, it's not the opening, it's after kind of the whole cold open inciting incident. After Amleth has grown up, We begin with him and this group of berserkers as they go on this raid. And what the raid is, is they sack this village, they kill a bunch of people, and they take all of the strongest and best slaves and ship them off wherever they're going. This is what they're doing. They are slavers. Like, these are bad guys here. And there's a particular moment that's an homage, I think, to emil klimov's come and see where you oh, 100%. Just in, you're you're getting a tracking shot and in the background of the tracking shot they're kind of sorting they're like all right this one's big enough go over here you're small go in the building and they get everybody in the building and then they bar the door and then they burn the building down this is a brutal civilization full of brutal people i think the movie kind of presents amleth as a little bit detached from all that kind of stuff but he is also as i've already said biting people's necks open <laughs>
2: yes i mean that's the thing none of these people know anything different this this is is the only world world they've ever known
1: everything that this movie is is defined by the presence of the gods which a lot of mythological adaptations in modern media miss because every major player of this movie worships either odin or freyr who are like these norse gods they're brutal like they're hardcore motherfuckers the whole yeah. concept of Valhall, the whole concept of their heaven, is about killing people. It's about brutal sword fights and axe fights and, you know, headbutting people to death. Just like the witch, I think that you can walk away with a sort of modern understanding of what you're watching, but the depiction pulls no punches in terms of the kind of savagery that you're looking at.
2: Robert Eggers, our greatest historian.
1: He's the only guy that should be allowed to make period pieces for the near future. Him and Pablo Lorraine are on period piece biopic duty, and no one else.
2: Everybody else is on timeout until we can figure out what's going on. That's right.
1: So that brings us to our mutual number one, of the year, Mm -hmm. which is the subject of this episode, Gaspar Noé's Vortex. So before we hop into Vortex and our reactions to that, what the movie is, what we think is great about it, why it's each of our number one of the year, I kind of just want to take a second and just talk about Noé's filmography. Noé's like one of the most notorious auteurs working in film today. I think that he is a name that's kind of synonymous with a certain He's synonymous with a bunch of different things with his unique formal style, his collaborations with Benoit to the cinematographer and the unique digital cinematography techniques that are implemented in much of his films. There are a lot of unique editing things that appear within a lot of his films. And I think that's worth talking about because I think that Vortex evolves some of those, leaves some of them behind. And there's a lot to be talked about because there's so much that is kind of synonymous with the style of a Gaspar Noé film. And I think the other thing to talk about is subject matter of a Gaspar Noé film, which tend to be very yeah. violent and provocative and involve a lot of carnality or abuse or even murder and things that are really transgressive in nature. And Vortex, by contrast, doesn't really have a lot of those things. So I think it's kind of interesting to talk about that difference, but also the ways that maybe the projects all along the way are kind of communicating the same themes. So yeah. Gaspar Noé, for all intents and purposes, you can start with his debut feature, which is called I Stand Alone. There's a short film that predates this called Karn, which is about the same lead character called The Butcher. He is a horse butcher who lives in Paris. Mm-hmm. If you watch Karn, just, you know what? If you watch any No Way movie, just like from here on out, there's a trigger warning for everything that happens. Yeah, just assume
2: films. the NC-17 rating is there for good reason.
1: And just to, yeah, in in Karn, which is like a 1991 short film, that's like the first meaningful film he ever made. It's like his first extant film, if you will, begins with a horse being slaughtered on camera, like in George Franju's Blood of the Beasts or Tukibuki or any number of films that include sort of a documentary style animal slaughter. That's how the first Gaspar Noé film starts.
2: We're not in uh, Disneyland anymore, kids.
1: No, (laughs) I stand alone, which is his debut feature, same main character follows this kind of misanthropic nihilistic lead character who to me sort of is like what if Travis Bickle was the protagonist of Cleo from five to seven like somebody that's just completely been worked over by the system has all these different sort of delusions of grandeur, and as I've already said like violent misanthropic nature and this is the character and it, it all just kind of follows him as he walks around aerating to himself and just being generally deranged in this movie he's sort of seeking vengeance because he has a mentally handicapped daughter who has been abused by a person but it's like the plot of it is so irrelevant next to what this movie is really about is putting you into the perspective of this very singular character this very kind of paul schrader taxi driver violent toxic masculine mindset and then using that as your lens to explore the world. And I think it's a really important starting point for Noé because that sort of existential nihilism, which this film is about and sort of explores the relationship between capitalism, the economic hardships of growing up, and just the general way that the world is, leads people to this sense of existential nihilism where they lack empathy. And there is this kind of cruel division between wanting to be empathetic to people and then the reality of it, the violence of people's actions, the violence of the world. Naturally, this is expanded upon very heavily and very infamously with Uri Versab, which I think is prior to Climax, his most popular film, his most notorious film, his most discussed film. Yeah. Um, um, lots
2: of walkouts, lots of vomiting and throwing up. And I think they had to call an ambulance or two, at least for this one. Yeah, which I was makes a lot of a, sense.
1: A, a, a tweet from the writer Mike D'Angelo, who saw this at Cannes when it debuted in the year 2002. Oh, two. Which I just, you know, there's a lot of movies that would be, you know, I just saw The Piano Teacher in public, right? Piano Teacher is not necessarily the easiest movie to watch for the last hour of it, for sure. But it is an empathetic and entertaining and you kind of get everything that Hanukkah is going for there. Yeah. Eri Versabla is a movie that is really unique in that it is structured backwards, kind of like Christopher Nolan's Memento. You begin at the tail end of the narrative events and work up to the beginning. If you know that, as I think many of us did the first time we saw Eri Versabla, you get to the film's centerpiece, which I'll talk about in just a second. And you sort of understand that from that point on, you're going to be working forwards in time. If you've yeah. never seen that movie before and no one, you know, has ever seen that movie before and you get to the centerpiece of that and you know that you've got 40 minutes left of this movie, what do you think is about to happen? You know, like I can picture walking out just based on like, wow, what if it has more gears than this? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, what if it gets more intense?
2: Yeah. You so- could not pay me to watch this movie in a public crowd
1: no longer beating around the bush what this movie is is it's the first collaboration between Noé and Benoît Debie the cinematographer i would say that it's really really defined by two qualities formally One of them is cinematography, which is like he's using this digital camcorder and like flipping it around like a psycho. It begins with this scene where you're like in a club and you're flying all through the club and it's dark. It's a gay club. And so you see men having unsimulated sex all throughout the club, which I think is actually really important to how the centerpiece scene kind of crawls into your head as well as it does. The second thing that it's defined by is that edit, the sequence which takes you in reverse. The entire quality of the film is like the camera is itself a character, sort of an objective observer that will not blink or look away no matter what happens in front of its face. And it has become sort of dislodged in time. It's flying backwards through time like a bubble. And so you're watching events, and what you find at that gay club is that you have two characters who are seeking revenge, which ends in a really explosive, gruesome way. And you find out that they're seeking revenge because one of their girlfriends but both of their love interests has been beaten and raped and is in a coma and so you work backwards until you get to the point where you see that very beating which is a scene that takes place over the course of like 15 unbroken minutes the whole yep. movie sort of shot in this way where I said like the camera's flipping and flipping and flipping it's not flipping and flipping and flipping in that scene it's sitting incredibly still and just sort of forcing you to Really watch this. It's yeah.
2: (laughs) The ultimate endurance test in human depravity.
1: And then from there the film works backwards to show you the things which led to this event, but largely is a scene of the three characters, the two men that sought revenge in the
2: Monica Bellucci. Monica gonna take a second to add
1: one of the greatest performances of the century for that scene alone. It's designed to look as realistic as possible. Her reactions are as, I was just thinking about the piano teacher. There's a scene in the piano teacher where like a mother character kind of gets shoved and she lets out this wail that I will never forget because it sounds real. Like it sounds like a real woman getting really shoved. It doesn't sound like an actor. And that's what Bellucci gives you in this movie. If you appreciate the vision of what this movie is trying to do, or if you try to assess it as a piece of art, everything about it requires this scene to feel as real as possible, as scary as possible, as nauseating as possible, as upsetting as possible. And all of that hinges on her making it feel real, which she does. In such a way, to such a degree, that when you are watching it, I promise you will look at it and be like, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. It's not really happening. She's just acting. This isn't really happening to her. It's like you are actively trying to unimmerse yourself from that moment because it's so intense. It causes like a certain level of like sensory dissociation, I think. The
2: first time I saw it, I could barely get through it. And I think I even turned away for a couple of minutes because I just couldn't take it.
1: This is like everyone's introduction. By the time I saw it, I knew that this scene was part of the movie. It was not. Yeah. It did not catch me by surprise. I understood that once it was over, that was going to be the end of the on-screen violence. But what I think is interesting about this movie, in addition to the formal stuff that I was talking about that relates to Vortex, the way that the movie is designed is that you see all of the bad stuff, so to speak, all the physically violent stuff. And then you see a bunch of camaraderie and sweetness. There's a scene that's just kind of Cassell and Bellucci in bed together. And it's just kind of like a, you know, it's a Truffaut or Godard scene, right? It's just two people hanging out on a bed talking to each other. And everything that makes it more sweet and more human makes all the shit that you just saw worse. Right. Again, exploring that division between cold, brutal way of the world where people die, bad things happen to people, mistakes are made, people go to the wrong level, people make bad decisions, and the kind of fragility of the body, the fragility of human life, and how harshly juxtaposed it is to the way that we all feel on the inside.
2: It makes the violation of her body all the more worse Mm -hmm. in context.
1: Uh, a movie that I would never try to dissuade somebody that had like a strongly negative opinion on it. But nonetheless, I think really one of the more vital movies of the century for the Bellucci performance for just like, it's just so uncompromising. So many movies try to deal with violent subject matter like rape, like abuse, like murder. And they use it for entertainment or they use it for drama. And they very frequently, at least in my opinion, skimp on the part of it where you have to, as an audience member, see it for what it really is. And this connects no way, to Mikhail Hanukkah, no. who we talked about already a little bit. connects him to just other European auteurs who, I think especially in contrast to the directors of the West, want to put an emphasis on violence that makes it look very banal. It's no. not an attractive, sexy movie violence. It's yeah. really brutal and upsetting and unpleasant.
2: Uh, let's not forget the other infant terrible that came out around the same time, uh, Lars von Trier. Yeah. Literally a year after Inreversible, we got Dogville, which is another exploration of the horribleness of humanity and just how low can you go.
1: You get Piano Teacher, Uri Versabla, and Dogville in like back-to-back-to-back to back to back years. It's like, yeah, right, that's, that's enough. <laughs>
2: I, that's when I need the happy pills.
1: <laughs> this, and this one is probably the most concentrated structurally on bringing you into this point and not allowing you to look away from it, which I think that right there is yeah. the pivot point to talk about his next film. So there's a, there's a considerable break between 2002 and 2009, which is Noe's next film, which is Enter the Void. Enter the Void was like this huge internet movie when I was like in college that was like how i found out about was enter the void and irreversable big but enter the void was like new and it was because it's like a drug trip movie because it's a movie about not really about anything <laughs> it's set in tokyo yeah. it follows characters and they drug trip and get themselves into weird wacky situations it's really just like irreversable but even to a greater extent i think a benoit de b film I think you could give like to be a co-director credit on it because so much of what that movie is like, it begins a little bit of a spoiler here. There's a character that you're following literally from a first person point of view to the point where he's blinking. Like there's like editing of him blinking. That's how first person it is. And then he gets shot in the chest. He dies. And then you sort of float up out of his body with the camera. And the camera becomes, like, completely disconnected from being a movie that follows a single character and instead just kind of floats like a ghost all over Tokyo, looking at all sorts of horrible shit. It's, it's like an even more disconnected from narrative thing that i think that Irv or Sabla is exploring where the camera becomes its own impartial observer of human reality and also there's a bunch of weird drugged out visualizations in it it's really a movie that you should watch when you're 14 and high it's like that's when you should watch enter the void that's when you will be the most susceptible to what it has to offer you because I just, I don't really think that it's particularly
2: deep. More pushing forward the idea of seeing the events of a Way* film from God's point of view.
1: Mm-hmm. So much of it is literally a, a God angle, top-down angle where you like, and yeah. you really just don't have any sort of narrative thread. It's, it's a very long movie and a lot happens. Like there was a lot that happened in it. I rewatched it and I was like, wow, I must've been really stoned out of my mind when I saw this because I didn't remember half of this shit. It's, it's like goofy. It's like the last one I would recommend to anybody unless they just like enjoyed watching things for the sensory experience of them. But it's still like Endures is one of his most popular because it's so visually and formally singular. And it doesn't, it's not as ferocious as Irreversable is. I think it's a little easier yeah. to watch. It still has a lot of shit happening in it, but it's none of it's quite that extreme. Yeah. The next movie that he released was Love in 2015, Gaspar Noé's first attempt at making Amour, if you will. Uh, Love is pornography. Love is a pornography film. It's a movie about a threesome it's, that includes yeah. a cum shot into the camera filmed in 3D.
2: And this was a top 10 film on Netflix.
1: <laughs> the great, a great Gaspar Noe interview where they were like, were you aware that your film Love had become the most watched film on Netflix? He's like, no, I wasn't. But I'm not surprised. People were locked down and they needed something to masturbate to. I right. mean, sure, man. We certainly
2: weren't going to get it from anything in America since we apparently had the most sexless cinema in the world.
1: I mean, this is like Oshima, but there's no real point to it. I just recently watched, upon your recommendation, The Realm of the Senses, which is another yeah. movie that has, is, it, I mean, I think it would also qualify for pornography, but... I mean, definitely. it was all
2: unstimulated, so.
1: so... So, In the Realm of the Senses was meant to be a pinku film that kind of challenged that genre and did interesting stuff with it and yep. kind of defied the conventions of pornography to such an extent that it was, you know, blacklisted and all that stuff. I think that Love is just kind of a pinku film. Like, it's yeah. the easiest way to understand it is that it is it's a pornography film. And that's, you know, it's an auteur pornography film. That's kind of neat, I guess.
2: Yeah, we don't get those often or at all. So when they come along, you got to take the chance to but experience we, it, not enjoy it, experience it.
1: <laughs> it's definitely my least favorite No Way film. The follow up to Love is, to this day, my favorite No Way film. It's really the first No way film that I fell in love with. And that is from 2018. 2019, if you're American like me. Climax. Which is... <sighs> Climax is like, to me, the aesthetic of everything that Noe and could built to as filmmakers up to that point. It is a movie entirely made of amateur actors who are not really actors at all, dancers, with the exception of Sofia Butea who is both an actor and a dancer. Sofia Batea, you remember from The Mummy? <laughs> if you saw that or yeah, um,
2: she also Kingsman. um started her career in dancing as a dancer for madonna um during the confessions tour so she's got a long history of dance
1: and she's really the centerpiece of the film she's kind of the face of it's an ensemble piece but she's like the face that you recognize and follow she's the marquee she's really name smart and she probably has the most complex dramatic stuff to do over the course of the movie to me climax before you even get into what it is narratively is you could almost consider it a quarantine movie even though it happened before covid quarantine because it was all made in one location at one time with the group of people that they had and everything like Dreyer's vampire was kind of decided on set based on what they had to work with and to me like there is no cooler fucking thing to do in movies than that especially when you pull off something as kind of intricate and as impactful as climax is So what Climax is, is the story of this dance troupe who are staying in a church rehearsing their big dance number for a tour that they're going to go on. It begins with a series of interviews where the characters all look directly into the camera and they give little interviews about like why they like dancing or why they want to be in the dance troupe or like why they want to travel to America. And then it explodes into the world's greatest dance number. I don't even know how else to put this. It's just like an amazing sequence. It is a a, a (laughs) stunning dance number. With all of the members of the cast, I think there's like 24 members of the cast doing intricately designed routines, each individual member, just as they are during the interviews, characterized by the dance that they do within this piece. And it's such modern styles of dance and such like eclectic arrangements of dance styles all put together in a way that looks like they fit together. And it's like, if you have any interest in hip hop, in club music, in dancing, this number alone to me is like just mind boggling. From there, everything goes to shit because they all, after breaking from this rehearsal, enjoy themselves a party where someone buys sangria and someone else spikes it with a level of LSD that would kill Donald Trump. I don't know. (laughs) And what proceeds is sort of an enter the void-ish kind of degradation of this party into violence, madness, sex, dancing, a little bit of romance, a little bit Litigation. of friendship, light, light child abuse. It's a movie that is utterly nightmarish, that just crawls so deeply inside of my skin, while also being fucking powerhouse technically in terms of blocking yeah. cinematography, choreography where just every frame of it is beautiful and then every frame of it's horrifying. It's like then the more yeah. beautiful you find it, the more horrifying that you find the later parts of it. And it's just so orchestrated and like this beautiful moving machine. And every part of it characterizes this very big ensemble. It's not like a very dramatically inclined movie. There's like scenes where the characters are basically just having like loose personal conversations. Yeah. But what you get is a lot of characterization where you're like looking in frame. There'll be like two characters way in the background and they'll be like doing something. And whatever they're yeah. doing will give you an, like an idea and you'll be remembering that. And then, of course, when the horror kind of kicks into it later, what's happening in the background is like a character sexually molesting somebody. You know what I mean? Like or doing yeah. something horrible in the background yeah. and yeah. using the same eye for detail that it was rewarding earlier and kind of punishing you with it in a way by like peppering in more visual kind of stimulation. There's a character that like does this sort of double jointed dance thing and he like starts like snapping his arms and shit later on and you just see him in the background of shots, the kids fucking shrieking in the closet. It's just like, oh, this is the worst. I hate this, but it's so good.
2: To me, this is the ultimate distillation of the way as a filmmaker in terms of what he's known for, what he'd likes to explore. And again, within the like tight 90 minute frame, he manages to pack so much in at its most raw emotional form that it does become like an overwhelming experience.
1: I have to shout out one other thing. Everybody really goes crazy for that opening dance number and it's worth going crazy over. There's another dance number that kind of kicks off the second half of the movie where they're, it's shot from that god shot enter the void angle, and they're doing a big dance circle, and I've always really found that visually hypnotic. That's when the title card drops, and what's happening there is like that blinking edit from enter the void comes back, and it sort of represents the degradation. You get this little fucking spin over the turntable, and then you go yeah. back to the dance circle, and it's just like, oh, everything's going to shit. Oh, no. And it's just, uh, it's just such a great... I don't know, I, I would almost compare it to like we said this with Batman, it's like being on a roller coaster. It's like just yeah. strap in, go. I'm not sure
2: ah. if this is a roller coaster so much as like a tower of terror where you just drop directly into hell.
1: First part of it is like very intricate, like you're going up all the stairs and you're looking at all the office furniture and you're looking oh there's like a museum, oh there's a cafe and you're taking in every detail and then the building collapses.
2: <laughs> um, also, a killer soundtrack. I'm uh, Just gonna mention that. Oh which also, during like those opening credits, they flash the names of the musicians on screen, just so that way you know how hard this is gonna go.
1: I, I've, yeah, we've kind of failed to mention. All of these movies have really great opening credit sequences. Like Irreversible. Oh yeah, where it's like it's like falling and it starts to like rotate as it's going. Enter the voids, really famous. Cause it's just like straight up strobe, 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 strobe. Enter the Void, another really great soundtrack, which makes sense because it's like a drug-tripping movie. I The end that that movie introduced me to at a pretty young age. There's a fun little bit of commentary that he did about Black Panther, which of course came out the same year as Climax, where he was like, I was listening to the R&B soundtrack of Black Panther, and I got like 20 minutes in, and I had to get the fuck out of that theater. That shit sucked. I could not handle the music in that movie. And it's... You know, that almost sounds, like, uh, out of touch. It's like, no, all of his movies have this, like, really... ...in sense of, like, music scene of particularly France, which has, like, a lot of house music, a lot of, you know, trap and hip-hop and things kind of throughout the 2010s. And he's right on the cutting edge of all that stuff kind of culturally. And I think the Climax cast maybe doesn't get enough credit for being, like... It's a really gay, POC heavy cast. It's super diverse. You just don't see that kind of cast in a horror movie when it's like the, yeah. the, the kind of blonde starlet is Sophia Bouteille. It's like. Right. It, and, and I think that's kind of cool. I think it sort of displays Paris and the Paris dance as it truly is a uh, melting pot of different cultures, and musical backgrounds, and. Backgrounds, just cool shit like that. So it's just this kind of cool depiction of culture in the middle of this horror movie.
2: A very enriching experience.
1: So the last project to talk about before we get to Vortex is Luxy Turner, which is a little bit of a. It's a shorter film than the others. It kind of, I think, it comes yeah. paired more or less with this documentary called Art of Filmmaking which talks a lot about like C.T. dryer and medieval times and shit like that. Did yeah. you watch that when you saw Lux Eterna as well? Uh, I think I might have.
2: It's um, not the really about the part me.
1: that sticks, but... Yeah.
2: I mean, the thing about Lux Eterna as well is that it started out, if I remember correctly, as a commercial for one of the major European fashion houses. I cannot remember which one, but it did start out that way before turning to basically... The Passion of Joan of Arc, but also that one episode of Pokemon that, like, blinded people (laughs) and gave them epilepsy.
1: The Porygon episode. Before that, there's, so it's kind of an Irma Vep, like a Sias, we were talking about a Sias, Irma Vep, or Francois Truffaut movie, Day for Night, where it's like a backstage film about shooting something. They're not really clear about what it is they're shooting. They're shooting Charlotte Gainsbourg and who's the other actress
2: uh beatrice Dalle. yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. two oh, two two icons yeah. of of french art house cinema shouts to trouble every day
2: speaking of throat ripping,
1: it's the first of the noe movies to start using that very de palma-esque split screen mise-en-scene where you're watching it'll sometimes just be two characters having a conversation with each other split by the yeah. screen one of them will be kind of in like red lighting one in green lighting Sometimes you'd be watching characters on different sides of the set that'll be talking about a similar thing or a different thing. To me, Lux Turner is like an experiment in that style. And then it just sort of explodes. It sort of explodes into this like crazy light show. A lot of
2: segments, like 10 minutes.
1: I watched it really late at night at home in my bed. And I was just like, the whole apartment's like... Lit up, lit up, lit up. It's like when you have those TVs that have like the color and they'll like shoot orange light under the wall. It was Mm -hmm. like that, except I don't have that on my TV. That was just the movie. (laughs) If I were to rewatch it again, I'm sure that I would come out of it with some thematic takeaways about creative process and filmmaking, but it largely, I think, serves as a stepping stone to Vortex.
2: because This is the one he had to make.
1: To to, to To figure out what this is. Yeah. Yeah. Because Vortex like Lexi Eterna, uses a lot of split-screen mise-en-scene to a much greater degree in much more intricate ways and for a longer period of time. Let's break into it. Gaspar Noé's Vortex. So, up to this point, what we have with Noé is a series of formal experiments, a lot of violence, a lot of sex a lot of drugs. There's some drugs in Vortex. But outside of that, there's almost none of these things. It really does not scan in any way as a Noé film right away in terms of its subject matter or its formalism. We don't really, even though Benoit DeBee shot this film, there's not a whole lot of the flipping the camera upside down. There's a little bit of it. The camera moves, but not as much. And that'll kind of make sense when you explore, I think, two things. One of them is the background of this movie, which involves Gaspar Noé having a very serious health scare. Uh, I believe he had a brain aneurysm, but I might yes. be wrong about that.
2: And it was from drug use, so he is now sober.
1: This film, which stars Dario Argento in the lead role mm-hmm. of Italian horror filmmaker and Francoise LeBrun, who, oh yeah, she's in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And India song. There you go. Boom. <laughs>
2: She was also in uh, The Mother and the Whore, which was a huge smash French art house hit in the 70s.
1: This film is the story of two European filmmaking talents who are playing an elderly French couple kind of in the twilight of their lives. And particularly, it's an exploration of the wife characters on set. Of dementia, which immediately makes it similar to a filmmaker I've mentioned a couple times, Mikhail Hanukkah's Amour, the second, Gaspar Noe's Amour. And a little bit like Florian Zeller's Oscar winner, The Father, for which Anthony Hopkins won Bass Actor. It's based on a stage play. It concerns the Anthony Hopkins character who's going through dementia and his relationship with his daughter and kind of all takes place in a single apartment. I want to say something really fast about the father, which is that I thought when I was coming in to see Vortex that it was gonna do a little bit more of what that movie did in terms of using the formalism to recreate the psychological sensation of dementia by which I mean there's a lot of match cutting and little trickery to kind of take Anthony Hopkins and make him think that he's in one situation, but then whoa, nope, he's in yeah. this situation because he's perceiving some, reality. There's, there's
2: also way. some really, really clever production design going on there. Like the apartment slowly changes. His daughter is noticeably played by Olivia Coleman, but there's also a second actress playing her. So you're completely in Anthony Hopkins mindset and as his frame rots, so this is grasp on reality and you get to watch that happen.
1: And given what we've seen with Uri Versailles enter the void, climax, I stand alone. The formalism of Gaspar Noé tends to be extremely psychological, and it tends to involve a lot of camera movement, a lot of interesting editing to recreate this. Vortex does none of this. It has no interest in being that type of movie, which I think is really fascinating. I would go so far as to say that, like, it is a mature choice, and I think that it has. I, I'm not insulting the father. I like that movie quite a bit. I like Vortex quite a bit more. That's that's just the way that that is. But it's for a filmmaker like Noé, who is a known provocateur, who is a known experimental formalist, and the formalism of this movie is experimentalist. We'll dig into yeah. To show that restraint here and do nothing to goose the audience vis-a-vis this character's perception of reality. In other words, there's no Satoshi Kon in this. There's no perfect blue, oh, we gotcha. It is very much a frank drama observation of what these characters go through.
2: In this film, there's nothing more heartbreaking or frightening than just the basic facts of what's
1: happening. When we begin the story, the wife character already has dementia. She's already been diagnosed. They already have accepted to some degree that there's no real treatment or cure for this. She's medicated. But as we find out, it's not necessarily the most disciplined regiment in the world. And they're just kind of living their lives. Argento is playing an aging writer and film enthusiast. There's a lot of film ephemera in this movie, which I love. Like Anytime you get film ephemera in a movie, it's usually like filmmaking. It's like behind the scenes. We're making a movie. Oh, movie history. This is like, hey, we have the original Japanese Metropolis poster in this apartment. And I'm like, oh, this rules. Because what you're watching with that split screen, basically at all times, you are following the wife and you are following the husband. And most of the movie set in their apartment. And you're just sort of, yeah. one half of the screen is locked on one of them. The other half of the screen's locked on the other one. And while there are many things which happen throughout the film, which are sort of significant and plotted and deal with the conflict, a lot of it is also just sort of like, Ari Argento's character sitting at his desk and typing. Very observational, almost direct cinema. Just to keep going with Hanukkah comparisons, a little bit of like Code Unknown, a little bit of 71 Fragments, where you're just sort of observing. You're just watching people go about their daily lives.
2: I want to take a moment to focus on the split-screen technique specifically, because the film opens with title cards for Argento, LeBrun, and The Way, and you get their years of birth. And the first scene in this film... There's no split screen. It's just the old couple in the apartment having a glass of wine and a nice dinner on the balcony. And then it gets to maybe the next day. And this is maybe the single most violent thing to happen in the film. Like to me, when this happened, it felt like violence. You see the split screen slowly come down over them in bed. And it's just inching closer and closer to her arm, which is over on Argento. And then she slowly turns away from him and then the split screen completes itself and that is the moment that these two despite how many decades of marriage will never be that way again
1: you have these moments where one or the other crosses over just thinking of a random example there's a sun character in this film who we'll talk about there's a scene where argento and the son are basically discussing and the wife is in the middle and for the most part whenever they're in any kind of conversation like this she's in the sun's frame she and the son will be in frame together But there are moments where she'll lean and enter Argento's frame as if there are these sort of moments of clarity where it's like, oh, okay, she kind of came up. All right, she's back. (laughs) Or her hands will reach across the frame, but not the rest of her. There's not a lot of moments where she walks all the way into the other frame and hugs him. That doesn't happen. There's one other thing that we should talk about. It's right at the very beginning, after that opening scene, play Francois's party. Mona Mila Rose is the name of the song. And it's it's just like an uncut version of her little two and a half minute song and it's like lyrically and the tone of it i think really establish everything about the movie like this is a movie where you can get super deep into the details because the actual very very first shot you're being pulled out of the sky and the very last shot of the movie you're being pulled back into the sky and these things are significant these are significant aesthetic choices to what the film is all about and the song bon ami la rose is sort of this romantic but wistful little tune about the impermanence of life you know the impermanence Mm -hmm. of a rose the impermanence of human life but naturally by invoking a rose also sort of the beautiful scent and the beautiful picture and trying to kind of embrace it and there's just this kind of Cocktail of emotions that that song draws out of you before watching this movie commence. I think it's a really, we were just talking about the soundtracks of these other movies. It's a really strong musical choice to kick this movie into emotional gear, basically. And it's also like a classic of like French yeah. music. You can picture this couple dancing to this song at some point in the 1960s or 70s right like yeah where it's like this was their song that they played on a record somewhere and it, it doesn't have that in the film actually yeah. but you can kind of date it when you know you see Gaspar Noé's birth year and you compare it to that song you kind of feel like oh did you hear the song when he was a kid that kind of um, yeah and it gets you thinking about memory and lifetimes of memories which is how the production design of this apartment which like I swear it's got to be like Argento or Noé's actual apartment or something, because it is so insanely full of materials. It is a lifetime's accumulation of objects from a film writer and from a psychiatrist. And so it's just full of books, like every European auteur character's house. It's overwhelming. It (laughs) is. (laughs) At At a point in every man's life, he will have a desk, and the desk will be so full of shit, the only thing you can put on it is a single cup of coffee. (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's it. There's no room for anything else. There's it's overflowing. There's two lifetimes of stuff in here.
1: Absolutely. One for each of them inside this apartment. And it's so full of character. The film is quite, It's. I think it's No Way's longest, I think, or maybe Enter the Void is a little bit longer, but it's, it's second since the second longest. And it's kind of a slow trawl in some ways. And a big part of what I found myself doing was just sort of. Wow, I'm looking at this apartment. Look at these shelves. Look at the posters. Yeah. Look at these books. Wow, look at this furniture. What's on the TV over there? You know, yeah. like I'm, so I already mentioned Alex Lutz plays the child of the two parents. He's the adult child, and he himself has a child whose name is Kiki. He's like a little boy. And I kind of feel like I'm the little boy. I'm sort of like, I don't know any of you people, but I'm in your house and I'm looking at all your stuff. Hi. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a lot of the yeah. conflict comes from, the wife character, and her dementia, which manifests... Yeah, she gets her clothes, she takes out the trash, she tries to go to the store, and she's, like, walking down the street, and she sees, like, a little toy in the display, yeah. and goes in and asks for toys, which immediately, like, you have so little context, you haven't met that son character yet, you haven't met the grandson character yet, and it's sort mm-hmm. of like, who's she buying this for? <laughs> yeah. I actually think you can see so much environmental storytelling in this movie. You can yeah. see... There's, like, a little um, crib play area in her office. It's sort of elevated and lofted, but you just Mm -hmm. see kind of, like, the barrier But You see, like, a little guardrail and, like, a pillow and maybe, like, a toy. Yeah, there's a a tiny
2: bit. And then she ends up walking through that labyrinth of a grocery store, which... Do French people like being claustrophobic? I I don't know if that's just them or what.
1: I just... I mean, it, it's as scary as the climax hallway, right? It is when, when, whenever anybody's walking back there and somebody's like dying or on fire. This one's just a grocery store, but you just have this sense of like, with she's this character, lost. she has kind of like a timer of lucidity that she's on at any given moment. She's a few moments of like awareness, and then it resets. She's a few moments of awareness that seems to reset, and when it resets, she's in an environment that isn't home, or even if it is at home. There is just like this loss of awareness that you can read on her face. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question. So, most of this movie, some of it is Lutz, right? There's three characters the mother, the father, and Lutz, right? At any given point, yeah. those are the characters who are on screen. A lot of the time, it's the mother and the father. Did you find that you watched one side of the screen more than the other one? I
2: think I kept it pretty even 50 50. I think part of me focused on the, wife a little bit more just because i've had grandparents who have gone through this kind of disease or great-grandparents actually so i would like focus on her a little bit like some odd kind of protective mode like oh my god what is she getting into
1: i so for me i found that i watched argento's character a little bit more maybe because what he was doing is a little bit more active and constructive at times because he's obviously lucid and doing things he's like yeah engaging he's attempting to engage in an affair somewhat unsuccessfully yeah one that
2: happened like 20 years ago and he's still trying to bring it back
1: he's you know having conversations and discussions with his son about you know are they going to put either of these two elderly people into an assisted care facility things like that so i think i was a little bit more on him and partially it's also just sort of like it's less pleasant to watch her it's not very pleasant to just watch every little thing that she does because she is scared she is upset a lot but what I would find is exactly what you're saying is like I'd be watching Argento and I'd be like I haven't looked over at her in a minute what is she doing I'm scared I don't want to look over there (laughs) because I don't match the kids I focused on her a little bit more (laughs) but but when you don't you have that anxiety like what's she doing over there what is she getting into what because she's doing things like setting the stove on fire and letting the flame Climb up, or else setting the gas on the stove on, and you know not turning it off, or pissing all over the floor, or just doing whatever it is she's doing. She needs throwing out his book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cleaning up his extremely cluttered desk. This is a person who I've already said is a retired psychiatrist who has the ability, has a card, and can write prescriptions at the pharmacy. And probably the pharmacist knows by now not to fill her prescriptions. You know, this is a person who can wreak a little bit of havoc here. She's just sitting there
2: at the kitchen table minding her own business, mixing all kinds of medications yeah, together. Just crushing, for some just
1: crushing pills that would kill a normal person. That would. Yeah. If you gave one of these tablets to a victorian child they would die and she's like crushing (laughs) 30 of them in the bottom of a glass like (laughs) i want to talk a bit about alex lutz who plays the the kid because his performance was the one to which i most related he's obviously closest in age to me being that he's like in his 30s probably yeah as a kid and is like the fuck up kid of these two parents as we learn that he was kind of unruly as a kid that they used to have to worry over him. And he has now reached what I would consider to be the universal point in any child life where their parents now need more care from them the way that they once did. And it's a really intricate emotional exploration of how strange that transition is how much he really wants to make it work for both his father and for his mother to take care of them. I had a great conversation about this movie the day after I saw it with a friend of mine where we talked about, so when a mother or a father take care of a baby, that's a big burden, right? It's a big responsibility, as we all know, to raise a child. There's so many things you have to take care of. But you're raising that person to give them life so that they can go live their life. And what Lutz is doing is taking care of his parents so that they can die. And I don't mean that to, to come across like this great big spoiler of this movie, but what the movie is about is the process of dying. It's about the process of aging through the very last years of your life and what that's like. And I think exploring that so much through the perspective of the child, who we might consider like a parallel to Isabel Hupir's character in Amour, Uh, is a really fascinating one. How much responsibility he has to take on, how much emotional taxation it is for him to endure all this. Because it's not just taking care of people who need to be taken care of. It's taking care of people who need to be taken care of and who are going to die very soon and who have lived for a long time who are ashamed maybe of their bodies and state of their life that they're in that they have to be taken care of. We see this with the mother who has like a deep, deep, deep sense of shame about what she's Oh yeah, going
2: she's embarrassed about the entire affair.
1: If we imagine her in her lucid moments, this is a psychiatrist. She knows yeah. everything there is to know about this. And I think probably on some level it's like, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. Which I think is yeah. a big part of this movie is the psychological weight of inevitability. Everybody dies. Everybody gets old. Most people get sick. I've really tried to be gentle with the way that I describe this movie because I want to call it tough. I want to call it unflinching. I want to say that it's harrowing, even, but it's so gentle with the way that it's unflinching, if that makes any sense. It's firm, but it's forceful the way that like a very caring parent might, you know, at the end of this film, there is a moment shared between the Lutz character and his son Mm -hmm. where there is a basically a gentle reassurance about the nature of mortality and the nature of life. And that's what this movie is like. It's like being guided firmly through something that is deeply unpleasant, but absolutely fucking necessary. I think of all the films Gaspar Noé has ever made, this is the most essential. This is about real shit in the real world. Like, If you don't care about cinema, this movie is an essential watch because it's not about that. It's about life. It's about what it is like to exist as a human on the planet. I think ultimately while it centers on these parent characters it's very much more by the end about lutz and his child because they're the ones that live they're the ones that are gonna have that next chapter of their lives they're gonna build up their apartment of posters and books and everything else
2: and this film especially after that little moment that they have in between the son and his kid where the kid sees that his grandparents have been cremated, they've been buried, and they're in the mausoleum. And he asks, is this in a new home now? And the son says, homes are for the living. Right after that objective yet gentle moment about the brutal reality of all this, you get maybe the most devastating montage of the year, where you go through the parents' house, and room by room, it empties out. And there's nothing left.
1: It's just a quick photo montage, and you see the room in different states, right? So you see it, it's full. You see some of the posters are off the wall. Oh, now some of the books are in boxes. Oh, wow, now it's empty. You, it looks like you're looking on Zillow, right? Except they haven't even cleaned it yet. You're looking at the empty rooms of this apartment, which, as I was talking about earlier, the movie kind of allows you to really take in the detail of every inch of this place, every accumulated piece of these people's lives is a visual detail of this film. I let she you builds really a relationship with it. With, with her clothes. You know, you see the interior of her closet. We see yeah. these coats and dresses and things that she has. Probably some articles of clothing she hasn't worn since she was a kid. We see yeah. her turning photographs down. Everybody has photographs, right? We, you know, we know that they've got like a DVD collection. I was like looking they have like a laser disc collection. There's just all sorts of stuff. And then, like will happen to each and every one of us, it's boxed up and moved away so that the space can be made for a living, for someone else, to live their life. I was really thrown, was not expecting. I thought they were both going to die, but I didn't yeah. think he was going to die first. And that shit boxed yes. me up. And the way... When he
2: has the heart attack.
1: The way that this movie communicates those two characters' deaths with the fade into blue and then the fade back in from blue on their corpses I think is really powerful because one, it's a really just sort of like mature way to communicate filmically like they've passed on to the next world or whatever. But then it also makes you observe like, no, the life has left their body. This is a corpse. This is now a body with no soul, with no life.
2: Yeah, and then you see the corpse covered up with a sheet. Um, I think one of those shots was even used as a uh, poster for this film. It's,
1: so the poster shot is when she is in bed, saying the Lord's Prayer, which made me cry.
0: <laughs> yeah, there there were goes, two
1: scenes that really got me, and it was when Lutz and his mother are in the hospital room, waiting on news from the father, and he like curls up in her lap, and she looks like she's on fucking Mars. <laughs> and he's like just kind of taking comfort in her presence if not necessarily her emotional presence her physical presence yeah. uh, well her emotional presence but not her psychological presence i wouldn't say yeah her and body then, is
2: there her brain is in narnia
1: and then the, the montage came pretty close just because i had already done it but it was it's it's when she covers up her face and is saying the lord's prayer and sort of yeah about to die i believe she turns the gas on
2: oh yeah no that's the thing if this movie couldn't get any more depressing sounding to you dear listener she kills herself
1: yeah she she commits suicide and therefore it is hanukkah's the seventh continent the last movie that i didn't bring up with this it's such a beautiful little scene though it's just like the way that it's so peaceful and i've compared it to memoria a couple of times i don't Mm -hmm. think that it has a ton of I could make the case for its thematic uh, similarity, which I will do right now. Yeah. Vortex is a movie about how life, one's life, not life, one's life is finite. It ends and you die and you move on. And that's your life, right? It ties into the career long thesis of existential nihilism of Gaspar Noé, which is that no matter what happens to you, you die. But it's not like nihilistic in the bleak way, it's nihilistic in the you have a limited amount of time on this earth. Spend it with the people that can cry with in the hospital hallway when it matters, type of thing. Yeah. Memoria is a movie about infinite nature of the human soul. All of human history is within a single second, and this moment connects to all moments past and future. Yeah. But the the, the two movies like made me feel my body in a different way when I was done watching them because- mm-hmm you are so locked into the idea of like human life and human existence on the planet earth and i think the the highest compliment that i could play that, that i can pay this no Way movie is that i'm like comparing it to a We're a Sothical masterpiece that,
0: like yeah. is
1: completely like poetic cinema impossible to summarize and it and it just leaves me feeling not the same emotions but emotions that resonate similarly deeply if that yeah. makes sense it feels it deeper does. than art it feels like, it speaks to the universal and essential nature of the human condition, which could have only been done by Gaspar Noé. Like, no one else could have made this movie the way that he made it. I just don't, I mean, no. Amor is a phenomenal movie in its own right, but it's a different film about different characters, about different ideas,
2: it's not yeah, about that,
1: that, death per se.
2: Yeah, that's a different interpretation of death. Vortex, you can tell, is made by someone who was almost there. Yeah. And knows what it's been like to
1: be there. Mm -hmm. To all Hanukkah films and all Noe films is that it just refuses to look away from anything. You know, we were talking about like, were you watching the Argento side because you didn't want to be watching that side? It's like the movie never stops looking at her. Ever. There's never a point when she is drawing breath where she is not in frame. I
2: can't play chess with it. This is just the reality.
1: And if you could, you would lose, and that would just be that. And that's sort of the thing with the Argento character dying first—is that he's not the one with dementia. He's lucid; he's of his right mind, and his body just goes boop first. Sorry.
2: He, yeah. Or well, they mentioned earlier that he has some a heart stroke? issues.
1: I think he had a stroke as well, because yeah. the son talks about putting him into the home, and he was like, "We well, had this stroke. Who would call the hospital?" If mom can't, which of course we see later on, he has a heart situation, falls down. She doesn't see him until the next morning and has mm-hmm. to call the son instead of the hospital. That on is the, the most no way scene of the entire film. Is the tracking shot of Dario Argento, two a.m., bathed in red light, while his wife is on the other side sleeping peacefully.
2: Yeah, dying to the sounds and images of Solaris.
1: There's two films which feature very prominently in this. One of them is Solaris. You're seeing sort of the ocean. The other one is Dreyer's Vampire, which is specifically the scene where the character watches himself buried. And I'm so glad that you've brought up Solaris, because I actually want to make a point about the Vampire thing. So the mise-en-scene of this movie clefts the entire screen into two not quite squares, but they're like, if we say that it's a two-to-one ratio, then it's like two one-to-one squares. It's they're actually rectangles, but just go with me. It splits everything into a box. It puts a dividing line and it boxes and it boxes, right? The scene where he's watching Vampir, if we think about the composition of it, we see him. So it's split screen, wife's on the left, he's on the right. So one box is just him. He is acting like a frame and within that frame is a TV. The TV is a frame and within that frame is the casket and the casket is a frame. And on that casket, there's a window and that window is a frame. And inside... That window is this dude's face. And there's a lot of shots like that in the movie. For example, when we see the mother's urn, the mother's urn is inside of a glass case, inside of the funeral thing, inside of blah, 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 blah. And it's, there's this line really early on about like life is a dream within a dream, whatever. And it's like, there's these really like meta cinematic elements of like, Noe exploring the concept of mortality and his own mortality by like killing these characters basically. And- Exploring what it is like to bury them and look at them after they've died and look at the generations of future people that watch them be buried. We've all, I assume, had that thought about like, who would come to my funeral and what would they say and what would they be like? And it feels like this movie, even though the character is older than No Way, feels like that. It feels like we're sort of watching these, like a guy bury himself a little bit, a guy yeah. explore death that deeply.
2: Yeah. Which, he, again, he tells you right from the beginning when he puts his name and year of birth with the two stars of the film. And then at the end, you also get their tombstone. Now, his name's not on there, but the husband and wife are on there. And you immediately
1: think about those connections.
2: So at the beginning of the film, he's putting himself on the gravestone. Mm-hmm.
1: And every gravestone, when you first make it, you have your birth year and a dash. And then eventually we put the other one and everybody gets the other one. Eventually there's a line at the very beginning. It's just a quote. I think it's original. I don't think it's from anything where it's like for all the people whose minds will go before their hearts, which I think is really interesting of course, because the Argento character dies first of a heart condition and the wife yeah. is dying of a brain condition. So there's like a literal element to that, but it's also just so fucking poetic. Like, yeah. It's, it's such an intensely moving film that when I got home, every couple of minutes I would think about something from it and just like, like exhale like that. i just, and then I would think, "I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm okay. <sighs> just like, it really takes, it, it's a movie that is exhaustive in its portrait of what it's looking at. And by the time that you're done watching it, you just kind of feel tired. Like everything's yeah. kind of been drained out of you.
2: Yeah, I didn't cry, but I had to crawl out of my chair.
1: I'm glad that I did. I think I would have felt worse if I didn't. It reminds me a little bit of uh, how I felt kind of at the end of Drive My Car. Drive My Car is sort of like the thing happens, and you're building up the emotional tension, and then there's a release. It's much more conventional. This is yeah. like slowly letting out all of the air in the body, and at the very end, you're just deflated. You're just like, okay, cool. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's the most humane no way. It's the most compassionate no way. It's the gentlest no way, without compromising any of the philosophical ideas yeah. of his career, while furthering it's, it's... all the way through with the mise en scène. I think Debe does a great job of
2: shooting. Yeah, games. yeah. I mean, in some senses, this is also his most unpleasant film.
1: It's the way that I put it in my review is like the compassion is the cruelty. The more yeah. intensely you identify with this couple, the tougher it is. And I think that's really interesting because unlike the Baluchi character in Irre or the characters in Climax who are living in nightmare scenarios, this is pretty normal. Everybody goes through this. This yeah. is the story. I mean, not everybody has dementia, but everybody gets old. Everybody's heart goes out eventually. What you're looking at is a couple, they spent their entire lives together and died of old age, basically. The old lady, not so much, but they died of old age, pretty close. Who could ask for more than that? You know what I mean? Like, that's a good life. Yeah. That's a good life. Yeah. And yet, still, it's like really hard, and really gut wrenching. It's not just sad, but that's the thing about it is that it, it never goes into histrionics. It never goes into a maudlin territory about grief and death. It's just frank. It's just human.
2: Yeah. There's no monologues. There's no tissues. There's no running mascara. This is just the way things are.
1: One of the things that I identify with about the Lutz character is that he feels very overwhelmed and inconvenienced by all of this. And he Mm -hmm. he masks all of that behind a very good facade of patience, empathy, care, all of which are genuine. I don't mean to say facade to suggest that these things aren't real, but it's a facade to mask an inner turmoil of irritation, frustration. Through the Argento character, we also see just sour feelings. He doesn't like this situation. He is unhappy and he's mad at his wife, even though he knows that it's not her fault. He doesn't blame her, but it allows him to kind of unpack the emotions associated with grief and loss that aren't just like mopey sad shit. It's anger and impatience and boredom and all these other types of feelings that come up.
2: It gets into the ugliness that most films about death are absolutely terrified of touching. I think maybe the only other film that I could really name that goes into this kind of territory would be uh, Ingmar Bergman's *Cries and Whispers*.
1: Just a movie where, even if none of this is familiar to you, you just it it all will be eventually.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, this is going to happen to you whether you like it or not. So you might want to make your peace with it
1: now. Pick a good partner come and get you out of the grocery store, who's nice to you about it, and who won't yeah. get mad if you throw away their book.
2: Mary Wright, enjoy your life, make the good memories, because it's not going to last.
1: It's a movie that has a theme that a lot of movies have, but I think it earns it yeah. to a much greater degree because of the unwavering way that it looks at death. and Because yeah. it is one of a piece with many, many No Way films that understand death, that understand the finality and fragility of human life and the human body. And because it understands these things when it gives you a message about going and living and enjoying your life, you're like, well, I better fucking do it. (laughs) Right. It's not just some nice thing the Disney movie said to me to make me feel better.
2: Yeah, no. Um, And I guess that's a trend this year because honestly, everything, everywhere, all at once kind of does the same thing.
1: I think that this movie just because it is so personal to no way, but it's extremely empathetic and it's extremely intelligent and and just as you say it just tackles so many topics relating to death that most movies are terrified to talk about the most people are afraid to talk about you know like people that would be in your life and i i think that that alone gives it just such an importance as an artistic document because it will speak to you more frankly than probably some people in your life will about these topics about this experience about Noé's experience
2: yeah, it doesn't sugarcoat anything, and it's all the better off for it.
1: And, and, and along the way, it's just an incredibly fucking impressive filmmaking thing where they had to film. Oh, yeah. You know, imagine this subject matter, which would be so personal to No Way. He came so close to it. And he basically has to film this entire movie twice in order to get all of the coverage that you need to, to have. I mean, yeah. the experience of watching this movie, it should not be overstated. It is close to two and a half hours long basically the entire movie is in split screen. So it is like watching five hours of movie in two and a half hours of time. You are so loaded. That's why it's so exhaustive. Like that's why you feel so tired yeah. at the end of it. And then it attaches these different emotions to that. And it's just like, wow.
2: <laughs> you go through an entire lifetime.
1: It's, it's really, I mean, it's the best characterization of any Noe movie. I think it's his most philosophically rich since his debut of I Stand Alone. I think it's really formally accomplished. I'm I'm always going to be more of a climax person. Just yeah. maps into what I like more than this does. But like, I don't know. I'm probably going to get it. They're, they're doing some ended showings at the Texas theater of this. I saw it Nice. At the Texas theater. I think I'm going to try to go see it again before it leaves town because I would really mm-hmm. like to, but I'm also a little nervous about it because, yeah. Like, Jesus. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, this for me is my favorite in the way, just because I feel like it's the ultimate culmination of everything he's ever worked on. It's all um, of the
1: style, all of the substance. I, I'm I'm really interested to see kind of how this movie sits with me because it's I have not stopped thinking about it since I saw it. Yeah, I don't know how I'm gonna react to it the second time. I see it. Yeah, favorite of the year. I think it's right outside my top five of the decade so far, right below *Memoria*.
2: For me, this is my number one of the year. Easily wrestling with Drive My Car for Film of the Decade.
1: Yep. Yep. Two two movies about <laughs> grief that put every A24 elevated horror grief movie in the fucking ground.
2: Unless you like Prague fan fiction, then you might <laughs> like the A24 horror movie a little bit more. Yeah, you need that Rory Knessy 8.
1: Men nice. and vortex were like my last two new releases in theaters and both of them ostensibly are about grief and i left one of them like laughing about it because it was so stupid and i left this one like seriously rethinking the way that i breathed oxygen and it's like whatever you think about the technical elements of a movie like to reach in that deeply is so yeah. i don't want to say rare necessarily it is rare but the rareness is not it's just so personal no other movie will impact me exactly the way that this one did a completely unique thing yeah
2: i left men laughing hysterically i left vortex thinking i finally found a movie that views death the same way that i do when you finally get to that end to the pan back up into the sky you're heading over the city the camera is like slowly flipping a little bit Mm -hmm. So that way the city's like up here, the river's down here, fade to white, you get the tombstone. And then there's no end credits, so that's just the end. And the lights come up and you now have to- Stagger outside. You have to crawl out into the sunlight. I was going to say, I saw saw
1: 4 p.m. showing of this. I got out, it was daylight. I was like, I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) I need it to be midnight right now.
2: Yeah, I saw this at like 2 o'clock. Yeah, and I also went to an Alamo draft house. So there was me just you know munching on a chicken sandwich, watching people die.
1: That was uh, that was where I saw Jackie Brown, which was great. I haven't been to one of those in a hot minute. That was such a good, such a good movie. I love Jackie Brown. It's like totally the opposite of every Noé movie. It's just like the most romantic thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. Let's see. We've got a new Cronenberg that's going to be coming out of Con and playing in the next month. Crimes of the Future. Uh, there's a few other con releases that I'm really excited about. There's new Core new Park Chan-wook, mm-hmm. new Dardenne's, two new Claire Denis films. One of them is getting fucking bodied. Uh, Stars at Noon is not saw, is not doing well.
2: I saw the critics spatting at each other on Twitter, and I was like, ooh, ooh. interesting.
1: I really want to see her new one with uh, Vincent Linden and... Yeah. Juliette Benoche. Anything you're looking forward to seeing soon?
2: You know, I'm excited for all the festival stuff. I'm excited for, you know, anything that comes out from like a major tour this year or anything new or exciting that comes out, but I'm not going to lie. My most anticipated of the year. I am fully James Cameron pilled. Avatar: right. The Way of Water. Let's fucking go. <laughs> I,
1: I still have yet to see that trailer, but maybe I'll see it in front of the the new Top Gun: Maverick. Oh,
2: it would be insane if they didn't play that before. <sighs> yeah, uh, I, I think
1: have... the the new Mission Impossible just like jumped to at or near the top of my like anticipated future list. That's next year, not this year. Yeah. But I'm ready. That also looks amazing. Tom Cruise is here to save cinema.
2: God bless him. And so is James Cameron returning like a prophet from the wilderness after 14 years, 15 years, however long it's been. The teaser, which I saw in IMAX, I specifically went to go see Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Midness in IMAX <laughs> just for this trailer, looks absolutely amazing.
1: I saw multiverse of madness in 35 millimeter and did not get to see this trailer because it, the local indie theater plays their run of the movies that are currently playing. So they played Crimes of the Future trailer in front of Spider-Man, but not or not Spider-Man. It's Doctor Strange. They're all the same fucking thing. He opens a portal. You know what happens. I'm Sam crying. Raimi. How is Toby Maguire not in that movie? How do you get Sam Raimi to do your movie and it's like a cameo movie? You don't even put Toby Maguire in it. But Toby Maguire, what are we doing? Right. He was just in one of these.
2: I wish I could say I just admire how Marvel's quality is getting worse and worse as they oversaturate the market.
1: Or looks like
2: a Zoom call. Bad.
1: <laughs> and I'm really scared of what they're going to do with Wakanda forever, especially with respect to the potential to just fuck up. Chadwick Boseman and T'Challa's sign off as that character. They're they're really, they've been dealt kind of a shitty The Rise of Skywalker situation where an actor has died but did not die on screen in a movie yet. Uh, I have a, I just, I think they're going to fucking Rogue One Carrie Fisher him. I think they're going to deep fake Luke Skywalker. they do,
2: I think Twitter is going to burn Disney to the ground.
1: Yeah, but I think they're going to do it. (laughs) Like, I don't think, I, here's what I'll say. I think they might have the business sense to not make that decision, but they do not have the integrity to not make that decision. If they thought it would be well-received, they would do it like it was nothing.
2: James Cameron, please come and save me (laughs) from this deluge of just garbage.
1: (laughs) We'll have to be thinking about what we're going to do down the road, uh, because This has been really fun, and we obviously want to get together for more future episodes where we can... Oh,
2: 100%.
1: New releases, old releases, fun stuff, so we'll be thinking about that. But for now, we'll go ahead and sign it off. Cole, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank
2: you for having me.